Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Who said dictatorship was dead? In his new book, Big Caesars and Little Caesars, Ferdinand Mount draws on examples from history, from ancient Rome to Donald Trump and Boris Johnson, to open up a fascinating exploration of how and why dictators seize power and why they fall. Big Caesars and Little Caesars is available now wherever books are sold. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm all right. Thanks, Alex. How are you? Feeling very sporty. Yes, sporty summer. Really not something I say very often. No, and I have to say, certainly in my case, it's not necessarily that I'm actually practicing any of the sport necessarily well I can say definitively in my case it's that I'm not but I've been watching a lot we had the wonderful Ned Bolting on last week didn't we talking about the Tour de France old and new and it has we were all revealing our Tour de France obsessions sorry listeners if you're not into that (laughs) we're not talking about it again this week but we do have just to say it was so exciting in the week that's followed our talking to Ned. It got even more exciting, didn't it? It did. It was completely thrilling. And then I only tuned into the end of this, which is terrible. But then the other thrilling thing was the tennis apparently was just the best match ever. It was very good. But you know what? I It was on Sunday, obviously, talking about the men's final here. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I had, well, I had people to lunch who weren't going to watch it. So I did that thing, like the likely lads. Did you try and get rid of them? <laughs> I didn't actually. <laughs> I um I I served lunch, we chatted, they went home, and then I watched it and I did that thing from the likely lads where you avoid the score and I watched it as live. Oh brilliant. But it took you hours then. I finished at quarter past eleven at night. Yeah, I was gonna say it was absolutely very long, exhausting. Wasn't it? it was very, very exciting. Yeah. So we have gone a bit sporty this summer, I must admit, and we're going to be talking about running today. And dance, which is not sport, but it is the body. Mm. There's plenty of books involved as well. So don't worry, dear listeners. Bear with, bear with listeners, because we'll soon be back to our real sort of armchair ways. 
Oh, well, I mean, some of us haven't left our armchairs ways. We're just talking about other people's more vigorous activity. I was going to mention, actually, we were talking about festivals a lot, weren't we, earlier on in the summer because there was hay and you've been talking about the festivals that you've been doing. And a big one that we sort of didn't mention because it's much later is, of course, Edinburgh Book Festival. And I was just having a little flick through who's there. Loads of people who we've either talked about on the podcast or who've actually talked to us on the podcast. Well, I imagine that's why they were invited, don't you think? Well, because they'd heard them on the yeah. podcast and then they said, yeah. that's probably it. Alex. I would think so. I'd imagine that most programmers of literary festivals, ours is the, their first port of call when they want, to, they want to see who is a great talker about books. You carry on thinking like <laughs> that. So one of the first ones I saw was Rachel Hewitt, whose book we will discuss later on today and then Ned Bolting is going to be there talking about his book 1923 like you talked about Eleanor Catton who Toby talked to earlier on in the year and Greta Thunberg we haven't talked to her though we you know we'd be happy to if she'd like to I mean this is actually true window on the you know Wizard of Oz thing we have asked her haven't we yes we did but she was unaccountably she Quite was busy. busy she was busy saving the world I think that's fair mm. enough and there were lots of other people. Tessa Hadley, I think we've talked about her book, definitely, haven't we? Yes, indeed. And lots and lots of other people who, of course, I can't immediately remember. But it looks terrific. And there's nowhere better than Edinburgh in the summer. And you probably won't get a 43 degree heat wave, though, having said that these days, you never know. But yes, it struck me that that was one that we haven't mentioned, because I think because it's so much later. Do you know what I mean, than some of the others? Yes, it is. There's that spring round, isn't there? Yeah, exactly. And I've just seen that Brandon Taylor is also there. They're definitely listening to the podcast, these people, the the movers and shakers of the literary festival circuit, yes. Catherine Rundle, just saying, you know. Anyway, so if you want to hear lots of wonderful people, that seems like a good place to go, doesn't it? It does indeed. And you mentioned Rachel Hewitt right at the top. We'll be talking about her book in a minute. And we also have a fascinating piece later in the show about the storification of ballet. But first, when Rachel Hewitt went to buy a pair of running shoes, she was struck by how little choice there was. And when she asked why, the sales assistant told her it was because women didn't really take up running until the 1970s. Hewitt knew that wasn't true, but setting out to prove it took her on a fascinating journey through women's sports from 19th century alpine mountaineers to today's trail runners. Kate Hext has reviewed the book in her nature in this week's TLS and joins us now. Kate, many thanks for joining us. I think you've been out for a run this morning, haven't you? I have, yeah, I did 8K a bit earlier. Oh, gosh. Oh, Kate, that's a way to make at least me feel completely... Um, Why, Lucy, haven't you been out for an no, 8K no, run? No, I have, no, no, I haven't. I don't think I've ever been for an 8K run in my life. Absolutely hats off, Kate. It's just work avoidance, <laughs> just avoid, avoiding my email. Well, I have to say, we don't usually get this level of preparation from our podcast guests, <laughs> we and we might require it from now on. As long as we don't have to do it. <laughs> exactly so. Well, look, I, despite the fact that I myself can't run for a bus, I was particularly keen to talk to you about this book because I also reviewed it, not for the TLS, obviously, and I hugely enjoyed it. It's a mixture of sort of recovered history and personal memoir, isn't it? Yes, it is. And, and I think that that's what's really captivating about it. I think that although I'm a runner, you don't have to be a runner to really get what's special about 
the kind of discussion Rachel Hewitt's having here, because it's really about how women and actually about how people experience themselves in the world, the kind of intense consciousness, I guess, that you get running or doing any physical activity that engages your emotions, your intellect and your body in an activity. And it's something that we often we don't reflect on. I think often as intellectuals as well, people who spend a lot of time reading and writing, we often don't think about our physical presence in the world and how that makes us feel and how that makes us think differently. So I think Rachel Hewitt is talking about the history of women's sport, as you say, and she's thinking about her own personal journey through running, but also she's thinking about, she's opening up those broader issues as well and questions. Well, what was really interesting to me was that quite sometimes when you read books that are going through a period of history and drawing conclusions from it, and there is a sort of contemporary memoir, there's parts of the author's own life, you sometimes feel that a publisher has said, we'd like a bit of you in there. But this was actually her starting point. She wanted from the outset, as she conceived the project, to braid these two parts together. And that, to me, was why it kind of worked. I don't know if you agree with that. Yeah, I completely agree. And I'm really glad you've mentioned that, actually, because I think that that synthesis, as you say, of memoir and scholarship is part of what makes this book interesting beyond itself, beyond its subject. But I think it's a growing trend. I mean, I see it as a growing trend, this hybrid non-fiction form of writing, particularly among university academics, especially those of us trained in English literature anyway. And it's a sort of re-embodiment, I think, of thought, a re-embodiment of intellectual thought and consideration. I mean, I wonder, in my mind, it goes along with a loss of faith in critical theory or the turn to critical theory that really defines the 1980s and 1990s criticism and a sort of sort of turn back to how we experience how we think through big ideas through ourselves and through our lived experiences which I find much more humane much more captivating I think as a reader. Mm. Can I ask just about the title it seems like a bit of a sort of simple question but because it's called in her nature and I think you mentioned in the piece and as you just said it's kind of partly about being in the world and being in nature isn't it this kind of very basic thing that actually we need to keep in touch with it's partly about how you feel is that right when you're out in the world and it's just you engaging with the world around you which ideally is a natural world and you know often a beautiful and uplifting one not always (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. The title works in two different ways, which makes it such a good title. First of all, it works because women were told, and Hewitt talks about this in in the book, women were, were told for decades, for over the last sort of more than a century, running, mountaineering, hiking was not natural for women, sort of uncouth, sort of just not the kind of thing that women should be doing we you know we're built for other things we're not built for running this rubbish obviously and so the point i suppose is that it is in her nature it is in our nature to pursue physical fitness and physical pursuits the other point as you say it is about being in nature it i mean of course a lot of people run in urban spaces pounding the pavements but also for hewitt running and for the women who she is tracing Lizzie LeBlonde, Anne Lister and others, it's about a re-engagement with the natural world that often those women in history would have been sequestered away from in the house and with domestic concerns, but actually they can get out and 
have this very personal, very individual experience with the natural world in the countryside, away from the home, away from the kind of responsibilities that that brings with it. That historical story that you've alluded to, I mean, this is the story of female mountaineers, skiers, tobogganists, and the main one is Lizzie LeBlanc. She's the one that we meet most frequently and most sort of, as it were, picturesquely. I mean, we really get a, a great sort of sense of her life. But her life as a mountaineer, and she ends it as the first president of the Ladies Alpine Club, but she starts all this out of a sort of personal kind of doldrums, doesn't she? Sort of slight boredom, ill health, an unhappy marriage. And it's that kind of idea of the rest cure. And then she rather subverts that rest cure. She's not lying around taking the waters. She's careering up a mountain. Yeah, that's right. And it very much against medical advice at that time, often, that women should indeed be put away, be rested somewhere. Many people listening will have read The Yellow Wallpaper, a story, a terrifying story, about a woman put in a room on her own to get better, as though that would make anyone well. And this is a sort of counter-narrative. It's a counter-narrative, a recovery of that kind of history of women who tried to make, who made themselves well by challenging themselves physically, by doing what society at the time didn't deem respectable. And in a way that works with the memoir that Hewitt's telling as well, because she also turns to running as a way to get better, a way to get over grief, to deal with an eating disorder, which she alludes to and, and talks a little bit about very bravely, I thought. And running and mountaineering and engagement with a physical activity have, as she describes, often worked like that for women, enabling them to find kind of a different kind of community with other women who are similarly placed, who don't quite fit in with what society expects of them, with what their families expect of them, and who have to find another way of being themselves. I mean, there's all those sort of enormous questions of what is expected of a woman. And one of them is motherhood. In Lizzie LeBlanc's case, she has a child. And she kind of more or less puts that child out of her life, doesn't she? I mean, she does take herself sort of beyond the pale of what is expected of her in that way as she as she sets about conquering the peaks of the Alps. Yes, she does. And that is a part of the story that we don't hear a lot about. But of course, it's a, I imagine, a sort of subtext of great sorrow and disappointment, probably. I think that what Hewitt does very well is to retell the history of outdoor sport and also mass tourism as well, because it's a story of mass tourism. A lot of these sports were undertaken in the Alps, on the continent more broadly. So we're being retold this history of outdoor sport and mass tourism through a female lens with the kind of sacrifices and outrages, like not being the kind of mother people expect you to be, which come as part and parcel of that. And that also makes a difference that re-angling of the history through a female lens makes quite a big difference to how we see the history of sport as well because mm. what we find is not a history of competitive sport so much and not a history of the same kinds of sport but actually a focus on communities of people 
doing activities and a history of the kinds of things we don't think about that are ignored or forgotten in sport. Women menstruating, for example. I mean, who ever thinks about that? Well, women, but I take your point. Women, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I do take your point. It reminded me a bit when you were talking about the history of sport of something I only know very dimly about, but I was struck by it when I read about it, like the history of women's football this century, because I had had no idea that it was it was extremely popular and kind of just after the First World War, I think, or maybe during, you know, during the First World War, because all the, the men went off to fight and the women were playing football and then they carried on and they were very successful. And apparently some of the women's teams were getting bigger gates than the men's. And it was competitive, as you say, but, you know, there was a kind of thriving scene. And then it was just banned. It was banned by someone like the FA because they decided it was unseemly, a bit like the mountaineering, and then it basically didn't come back till recently. Is that kind of broadly right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there's a similar story with running and with the rise of the Olympics as well and the institution of the Olympic Committee, where women had, as Hewitt describes and, and evokes more than describes very vividly, this history of women doing sport together, which in a sense is undermined, or at least the a sort of broader understanding and knowledge of it is sort of undermined by a rise of competitive sport, including the Olympics, where the focus becomes on who is the fastest, who is the best, rather than sort of participation. And that focus on who is the fastest disadvantages women. She tells a very, very moving story, I thought, of Diane Lever who in May 1954, just after Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile, she herself, Diane Leather, got a sub-five-minute mile. And it was hardly reported because the whole emphasis was it wasn't interesting because it wasn't the fastest. Mm. Whereas if you had an Olympics in endurance, I feel like because now there's all these endurance races and well, all of them. I mean, there are some and quite often it's women who are just winning those, isn't it? I mean, amazing feats. They just sort of run for days and days and days. The ultra marathon. Yeah. Yeah. Very good for women's sport, I think. Yeah. Well, I became very interested in this idea of Rachel Hewitt as a trail runner, uh, because that seems to me, I mean, running is very hard. Trail running seems even harder I mean that really is endurance and whatever the elements are going to throw at you and orienteering I mean it just it's the whole package of sort of personal challenge isn't it but it's what gets her up and out of the life that she's finding very challenging she has been the book starts with the sort of multiple bereavements she's experienced and this sense of her kind of losing herself and losing her idea of her history, her solid ground, if you like. And it's putting herself on this definitively sort of unsolid ground. She's always slipping up and down bogs and screes and all this kind of thing. And that somehow enables her to find her feet. I I think I've become the worst extended metaphor in the history (laughs) of this podcast. (laughs) Take it away from me, please, before I do any more damage to the language. I think that's right about trail running. Trail running is such a different experience to running on the roads. You don't have that same sense of rhythm or you have it inconsistently. As you say, you never know what's going to hit you next. It's also it's a kind of state of purgatory, I think. It's a sort of it can be a state of bliss, but it's an endeavor. It's an endeavor where you, you don't know what's going to come next. And you're waiting for the next thing. You're trying, you're endeavoring to be 
not the fastest as you say it's not about being the fastest it's about overcoming it's about keeping going it's about not giving up more than keeping going and I think that she's also experienced as you say I mean your your extended metaphor isn't wrong I mean quite often a run can map difficult periods in our in our lives where you're not going to be the best you don't have to be the fastest but you do have to just stay on your feet and keep going I think and at its best it's much better than that at its best it's delightful it's Anne Carson in Eros the Bittersweet talks about she talks about Eros using a metaphor of running she says to be running breathlessly but not yet arrived is itself delightful a suspended moment of living hope and she's talking about eros as i say but i think that sometimes at its very best running can be a bit like that too it's a suspended moment of living hope that everything will be okay i love that way that 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 is combined with this incredible sort of tiny detail of what you have to contend with both in the historical story so for a start one of the threads of details is about all these early mountaineers trying to do their climbing going across crevasses and scaling rock faces Mm. and they're wearing long skirts and floppy Mm. hats and they don't have any equipment at all nothing is made for them and then you come to Rachel Hewitt's life as a runner and that is all about packing your gels and your bits of cake that are going to give you energy and your incontinence pads and all this kind of, and it's this it's this very sort of basic kind of battle with your body and your body's demands and functions too isn't it yeah I think that's absolutely right yeah and that stripping back of experience to the bare essentials to being you and your body overcoming can be very good actually I was going to say grounding and then I thought God, that's such a terrible metaphor I was, I was trying to think of something better <laughs> we can't get away from them it's we Alex's can't. fault she started it's, it I started it yeah <laughs> you're right fault, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yes oh my goodness the skirts the I mean this of course was that's mind-boggling really I know I mean for the Victorians who she's talking about it was an opportunity to get rid of the corset and get rid of the big hats but yes they still had all of those skirts to contend with and there are marvelous photographs in the book of these wonderful women with their full skirts and it's sort of holding them up as they scale these mountains it's really incredible and and thank god for lycra nice i don't think i'd be running in in that kind of get up I mean, that's a very sort of obvious kind of impediment. But of course, there are these other curtailments of women's freedom that Rachel Hewitt talks about. And one of them particularly, you know, and she's talking about her own experience, is this fear of male derision and also of of outright violence. You're very interesting on that thread in the book. Just tell us a bit about, about that and what you thought about it. Sure. One of the very interesting and thought-provoking strands in in her nature is this question about, or, or assertion, I suppose, about the literal and metaphorical ways in which men have curtailed female freedoms. And there are some really shocking examples of catcalling and nasty shouting in the streets after female runners. Hewitt's talks more broadly too about the ways in which male discourse including the first president of the olympic committee have stopped women from participating in sport or made women feel as though they're not allowed it's not somebody 
literally pulling you back from a run, although sometimes, of course, it, it was. Uh, Catherine Schwitzer famously was attacked by the race director of the Boston Marathon in 1967 because women weren't allowed to participate. But more pernicious than that are the examples that Hewitt gives of women being made to feel as though this isn't their place, whether in the streets because somebody's shouting after you, oh, if you go a bit faster, love. You know, we've all had that, I think, although I hope others and younger runners haven't, or whether it's just not enabling. I did depart from the thesis of the book in some ways at this point, because I think that the forces that affect women's sense of their selves in the world are not just about men stopping us from doing things. I think it's more complicated than that. There was I think at times too simplistic a thesis that men bad, female communities good. And of course, women often internalise misogynistic models of other women. Women can hurt verbally, otherwise other women in athletic communities. I've definitely seen that myself. And I think that there are multiple ways in which women are prevented by self-consciousness, by fear, by a broader social issues from participating in sport. And I, I think that Hewitt puts it down to men and male culture. And I don't think that's always the case. Also, I, I've experienced myself really quite the reverse of running with packs of men when I was younger and faster. I used to run in all male groups, just really helping me and helping other women who happen to be you know, a bit faster than average, being better than we thought we could be. So I think that sometimes the book's a bit too simplistic on the forces stopping women, preventing women from participating in sport. I think we have to ask you a bit about your own running as we draw to a close. You are in training for a, a very long race, aren't you? Yeah, I'm afraid so yeah, I'm uh, I'm gonna run 35 miles across Dartmoor, which is oh, quite good. That that's more than a marathon. It is more than a marathon. I mean, really is that wise? That's <laughs> I, I have to. Is no, it wise? Not. If you love it, nobody ever accused runners, uh, lifetime runners, of being wise. It's a sort of addiction, <laughs> I think. Well, at my age, I decided that I should do it now, or my knees wouldn't be up to it in 10 years' time. So. Well, the training for running is, I think, the same mindset of an academic researcher is the mindset of a runner. It's about a long-term endeavour. It's about keeping going. It's about a sort of obsession, I suppose, that kind of takes you away from other things you should be doing. So that's why I run and I, I wanted the challenge. Is it trail running? Are you running across Dartmoor, these very beautiful places? I'm running along the ex-estuary, so I run from the Exeter Quay towards the estuary every day. It's very beautiful. And of course, with running, and people say running's boring, but I think it's, what is it that, I think it's Hazlitt who says, it's only the dullness of the eye who sees the same two things alike. And I think when you're running, you notice the nuances. You run the same thing every day and you, you notice the nuances in the natural world as you see it again and again, and you watch the sort of the seasons change slowly. I have to say that's very inspirational. I'm absolutely terrible at running, but you do make it sound quite wonderful. It is quite terrible, actually. But, <laughs> but, if, you, <laughs> okay. but if you keep going, if you keep going and you break it, then it becomes really rather marvellous. 
Well, honestly, Kate, we wish you all the luck. But I have to say, I think you should come back and tell us how it goes. I mean, you know, if it doesn't go well, you don't have to. Obviously, we would <laughs> hold you that you may want to. But if you would like to, we'd love to hear all about it once you've done it. When are you doing it? I would absolutely love that. And I'm doing it in October. OK. OK, brilliant. You're coming back on. But in the meantime, Rachel Hewitt's book, which, as you can tell, I'm not a runner here or indeed any kind of Andrew. I would say I feel the sense of sort of that idea of the doggedness that you're describing and how freeing that that sometimes is. That chimes with me. But I am I am not an athletic person. And yet I still found this book really fascinating. And I think you did, too. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us about it. Kate Hext. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Still to come on the show, Alice Langer-Robb, a self-styled, still-recovering bunhead on dance, storification and abstraction. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. Now, when you go to a ballet or a dance piece, do you want to follow a story or see where the performance takes you? Maybe you hadn't thought about it in those terms, but Alice Langer-Robb has. Her book, Don't Think, Dear, on loving and leaving ballet, was published earlier this year, and she's written a fascinating piece in the TLS this week for us about narrative and dance, and so we're delighted that she can join us today. Alice, many thanks for talking to us. Thank you so much. Very kind introduction. Well, it's wonderful to have someone who knows all about ballet because I know very, very little. So we need a lot of education, please, here. You, so you talk about, at the beginning, you talk about the ballet canon, the classic works. And first of all, how kind of almost unsurprisingly, women don't fare very well in them, do they? They don't come to happy ends. Yeah. So the 19th century classic ballets like Swan Lake and Giselle, which are still performed very frequently. And, you know, often if someone has seen one ballet, it's it's one of them. They tend to tell sort of fantastical stories about doomed maidens and, and, you know, wizards and 
evil spells. And yeah, I mean, some of the most famous ones, Swan Lake is about a woman who's been cursed to live as a swan and um, she's only able to come to life when she's swimming in a lake of her mother's tears. That's fun. That's a fun detail. (laughs) You know, Romeo and Juliet, of course, we know what happened there. So these stories can be difficult to follow for a modern audience. And they're also just, you know, a little bit, um, a little bit depressing. Mm -hmm. It reminded me a bit of opera because Mm. especially in the grand operas, like you really, you have to look hard to find one where the women don't end up you know, dead or having a terrible time. Everyone's tiny hands are frozen basically yeah. all the <laughs> yeah. time. That's yes. the sort of bottom line before they, you know, and consumption is rife. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And actually I was fascinated by what, what you said, speaking of tiny hands, this is a terrible segue, what you said, Alice, about what the gestures mean, that there's a sort of vocabulary of gestures, which I think most of us won't get. Is that right? Yeah. So this is interesting because these stories are, often sort of acted out, there will be dance sequences. And these are kind of the famous parts where there's, you know, two dozen swans dressed in white dancing beside a lake. But in between, there are sections of mime, it's called, where the dancers act out the story. And um, they're using this vocabulary that sort of educated ballet audiences in the 19th century might have been able to understand but they're pretty incomprehensible today and they're not always particularly intuitive. So it could be something like crossing your hands over your heart means that you're talking about your mother. I mean, I, you know, I grew up studying ballet. I wrote a book about ballet. Like I still have to kind of study up when I'm going to one of these 19th century ballets. So there's a whole language going on there that frankly, most of us are are, are not going to get. Right. Yeah. Right. You're getting okay. that from the playbill. Yes, yes, I see. So you have to, but even that's not going to say to you when she puts her hands on her heart, that means she's talking about her mother, is it? No, or, you know, touching your head might be indicating a crown, which is saying that you're the queen or it's just, it's all very, um, it's not particularly accessible. Mm-hmm. And so do you think because of, in a way, this inaccessibility, this is why you argue that some of the 20th century choreographers turned away from narrative. So, for instance, um, and very famously, George Balanchine. Yeah, I mean, I think the turn away from narrative was in part about, you know, accessibility. I think it was also about modernism, you know, correlates with trends in other art forms. But I mean, ballet was incredibly popular for a, a period in the mid 20th century in New York. And I think a big part of that was, you know, people could just, they didn't have to study up before going to the ballet. They could just buy a ticket and go enjoy watching it and enjoy it for the sake of the beauty or the music. So there would be this idea that it was, it's more accessible because you're kind of saying to people, don't worry if you don't get all the little technical details it doesn't matter you can just experience this on a sort of a sensual level in a way yeah and also I mean I think if you think about like what are the pleasures of a plot I'm just not sure that you really get those from a ballet you don't necessarily even if you can parse what's going on you're not necessarily like feeling a lot I think the most impactful parts of these ballets like Swan Lake are still the sort of pure dance sections. 
Mm. And so people like Balanchine, it was like, well, as you say, it was partly a turn towards modernism, but also it was that you you could be more abstract about it. It wasn't this terrible thing has happened. So now you must feel sad about it. It was more that you you make of it what you want to. Yeah, exactly. But then the counterpoint to that, as you also point out in your piece, is that actually we like stories. And especially at the <laughs> box office, the ballets that do well, and actually this is probably still true of opera as well, are those ones of the canon where they are telling a story, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, of course, those ballets, those 19th century ballets have a strong head start. And, you know, they have some incredible music. And not to jump ahead, but to <laughs> the ballets that... It, have been adapted from novels that we're now seeing as a bit of a trend. You know, I mean, I think there's an obvious, there's a built-in audience, right? If you remember reading and liking The Great Gatsby or you saw the film, you might have a natural interest in seeing how a ballet is going to be made from that. Mm. Well, I was going to ask about that. So as you say, there seems to be a trend of it now. Well, is it very recent? Where, where do you think that came from, people doing ballets of novels? It's definitely not out of nowhere. I mean, there have been several Anna Karenina ballets. But there are sort of examples here and there of people dipping into the literary canon. But it has become, the last few years, there have been quite a few. I think um, the ballet world is pretty small. And I think it's the kind of place where even one person who has made it their whole thing to adapt ballets from novels can actually have an impact on the field. So someone like Kathy Marston, who's a British choreographer who just personally loves literature. Her parents were English teachers. She's made lots and lots of like very large scale ballets based on novels. And I think a lot of them have done quite well. What are the particular challenges that someone in her position would face when she was kind of selecting which which novels might make good ballets, do you think? Hmm. Well, I think that the another reason why it might be appealing for choreographers to adapt novels is that if they want to preserve some of the pleasures of plot, but to create work based on more modern stories. One of Kathy Marson's really big pieces was based on Jane Eyre. So there's, you know, of course, it's an old book, but, you know, a more modern feeling kind of empowered heroine. Has anyone done Wuthering Heights? Because I feel like that might be a good one. I actually think she has. I haven't seen it, but um, I did see the Jane Eyre several years ago at ABT and I made the mistake of not rereading the novel first. <laughs> very confused. <laughs> I'm just saying Wuthering Heights for the general feel of it would be good. But mm -hmm. as you say, it, I mean, even the broad lines of those plots, there's a reasonable amount of intricacy there and it's quite difficult to communicate. Tell us about The Great Gatsby because that's one of the ones that you write about. Sure. Preface this by saying that I think that these adaptations can work if they go for a more abstract style. So, I mean, I think if, if I were adapting a Great Gatsby into a ballet, I would lean into, you know, you want to make huge party scenes and um, really lean into that. And you might want to do something more abstract around the, the themes, around the idea of regret or ambition I mean what would that look like I don't really know but instead this great Gatsby which was at Sadler's Wells this spring just went very literal almost a scene by scene transposition of the novel and I reread the novel right before seeing the ballet and I mean I had a great time reading the novel you know it was very absorbed in the plot I was feeling things but then watching the ballet I just spent so much time kind of thinking okay so that's uh, that's Jordan and that's Nick and they're whispering to each other, but 
And I remember what they said in the novel because I just read it. But if I hadn't, I would be so confused. It just felt like the kind of the emotions of the story had been lost, but also I wasn't seeing like the dancing that I go to the ballet for. Mm. Is that because quite a lot of it had to be taken up in, and as you say, in mime, because they've got a lot to kind of convey? Well, so I actually don't think they were using a lot of classic mime. I think at this point, I mean, choreographers are are pretty aware that most audiences aren't going to be able to understand that. But they were doing almost more literal, like, acting out. So, you know, you might see, a like, there's a moment when Nick and Jordan are, if you've just read the novel, you know that they're talking about how they're going to get Gatsby and Daisy into the same room. And they just kind of are whispering to each other back and forth behind their hands. But the audience doesn't know what they're saying. And they're not really trying to communicate it. Mm. I can imagine how you might communicate some of the sort of feel and the atmosphere of a novel like The Great Gatsby through dance. That seems like a sort of something that seems quite self-evident. But that idea of the kind of interpersonal dynamics and the sort of power play seems a much more challenging thing to try to transliterate. Right. I mean, and of course, ballet has no words. I've occasionally seen a ballet where, you know, someone will scream and, you know, it's very uh, experimental, but it's just a very difficult form to tell a complicated story in. Mm. But there was another one you saw, I believe, of like Water for Chocolate. It was kind of perhaps a bit more able to lean into the themes. Is that yeah, right? I definitely enjoyed this one more. I saw this at American Ballet Theatre in New York, but it actually was, a, it was also at the Royal Ballet last year. And I mean, this is another complicated story, but this one felt like Christopher Wheeldon, the choreographer, was taking more advantage of the moments where you could just, okay, pause the story and let's have a really big fun dance. And, um, you know, there was, it felt like there was more interpretation being done. I mean, I think that was another issue I had with the, with the very literal Great Gatsby ballet, is I think anytime you see an adaptation, you kind of wonder, why? What is it being communicated in this new form? I mean, I just saw um, a musical of The Third Man last week in London, which was very enjoyable. But, you know, I think people were asking, like, what is this adding to the film that already exists? Did Like Water for Chocolate add anything to your feeling about the book? I felt like it did. Um, I felt like it was it was making more choices. <laughs> there were things that were done with the set and the design that I really loved. Most of the action of the novel takes place in the kitchen, sort of centers on the main characters cooking and expressing her emotions through cooking. And there were things like the main character who's not allowed to marry the man she loves, but instead, I mean, one thing that she does is she like becomes very attached to her, the man's child. And there's the prop that's used for the baby's blankets is the same prop that's used as a loaf of dough when she's cooking and there's something kind of interesting going on there you know it's a huge stage and a lot of it is sort of there's laundry hanging throughout the stage and then at the end the laundry becomes screens and there are flames projected onto them and then they all go up in flames 
sort of during the grand finale when she's finally united with oh don't give it away no it's okay and I wonder if that lends itself more because because also you quote some lines from Gatsby which as you as you rightly say the, the famous one about the boats I can't I should be able to remember the boats beating back born against the current and things like that that yeah and you quite rightly ask well how you dance that whereas like water for chocolate if I remember rightly it's very magical realist it's kind of people kind of I mean it is literally fiery as you say but things are a bit magic and they sort of transmute into each other and feelings kind of go under and then come out again 20 years later it's it's very kind of atmospheric isn't it yeah and I think they I mean I think it was still a little over plotty but I think it didn't get as bogged down with trying to say I mean you know there are parts where the text would come on the scrim and say, you know, 20 years later, five years later, okay, do we need to cover every year, every generation, every micro generation? But generally, I felt like, yeah, it was more sort of leaning into the operatic vibe. Well, I suppose some of those sort of classical narrative ballets that you're talking about, they do have a kind of fable-like field and there's lots of sort of things metamorphosing into other things there's a kind of more universal sort of fabular structure and it seems as though the kind of detail of a novel might be the thing that slips beyond the grasp of ballet's ability to convey it yeah and I think it's like you were just saying Lucy that so much of the kind of pleasure of Gatsby is in the specific language and Ballet is just not the right medium for that. It, mm. it has no words. But yeah, I mean, something to go back to like Swan Lake. Yeah, I mean, I think there is something about the kind of surrealness and the kind of absurdity that can kind of work. Mm. And ballet is such an unnatural thing. I mean, just from the basics of the technique and the, you know, extreme, you know, dancing on tips of your toes. You know, it's not like a really realistic there are choreographers who try to make it, who try to act out like more human stories, but you know, mm, there's you, something almost campy about it. When you mentioned Anna Karenina there, I mean, I can completely see how you do the grand passion, mm. but I'm less sure about the sort of crop production parts of it. <laughs> <laughs> how you might sort of convey the kind of Levin storyline in it. It's a complicated affair. I can see that. Yeah, it's interesting. This ties in, you say, with because uh, you refer to um, another book, book that was published last year by Peter Brooks, Seduced by Story. And you feel that it kind of ties in with his thesis, don't you? Yeah. So Peter Brooks is a literary critic who wrote a book last year arguing that our world has become oversaturated by story and that we've forgotten about other modes of communication, which, you know, I found pretty convincing. He cites, you know, he takes us through a day in his life from reading the back of the cereal box. And, you know, it's a story about the young entrepreneur who <laughs> made it in his kitchen and turning on the radio and the news is presented in sort of narrative format. Yeah, I think we talked about that book on the podcast, actually, oh, really? <laughs> a while back when it was reviewed in the TLS. And it did sound like he was really, you know, explaining it in the most sort of entertaining way, but with a very <laughs> serious kind of point there. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's definitely something that resonated when I think about like social media and seeing people's stories on Instagram and the way people talk about 
you know, having main character energy and kind of conceiving their own lives as stories. So I do think it, it makes sense that, you know, people would be interested in that in their ballets too. I think mm-hmm. it kind of takes a different, even though I think that abstract ballets are more accessible and were intended to be kind of populist, I think they do also take a kind of patience that we're not often asked for in this kind of narrative saturated climate. I wonder if it's also to do with is that you have to give up understanding for a bit. Yeah. Don't you? you have to. You yeah. have to just sit and go, okay, I don't I don't know what's going on. But I suppose a correlation might be music, just instrumental music. Mm-hmm. There's been a long kind of argument within that in classical music of, you know, what's the story? Some composers did have a story behind a symphony or a piece of work and some of them really didn't and you know they're like there's no story this is music you have to give up to it and not try and work out what's happening as it were and you had an experience like that didn't you at at Sadler's Wells yeah I saw this um contemporary dance piece that I loved called Skid by a, a Belgian choreographer and it was except the dancers are dancing on a slope set to 34 degree angle and it's 45 minutes long and it's just totally abstract the dancers you know sometimes there's one sometimes there's a group kind of crawl up the slope and they kind of jump down it I'm not doing it justice in this description (laughs) but (laughs) at one point a man climbs up it climbs the slope naked and then kind of falls off but it's just almost radically not narrative and when the piece started and it's set to this electronic music again I'm not sure if I'm selling it but I really loved it and when it started I was still kind of in this you know narrative automatically narrative frame of mind and I kind of struggled to get into it and I was looking for stories and kind of trying to make up little stories and then as the piece went on something happened and I kind of relaxed into it And I started to really, it was almost like being in a trance or something. Uh, It felt very meditative. And I finally felt like I was kind of seeing, like, this is the possibility of experiencing a non-narrative work of art. And it felt really different. And I felt like maybe this is what Peter Brooks was trying to describe that we had lost. Mm. And you'd say that it was a bit of a departure for you because you call yourself a still recovering bonhead, <laughs> which is just a brilliant <laughs> description. Are you convinced by not using narrative or is it just that you're kind of slightly moving away from there? I mean, I think both. So I grew up studying ballet and at the school founded by George Balanchine, who's, you know, very mm. highly associated with abstract work. So I think, you know, my bias has always been a little bit towards towards abstract ballet but I mean this certainly made me want to go to more contemporary more contemporary dance so in terms of contemporary ballet choreography Mm -hmm. is there much abstraction around or not really yeah there definitely is I mean Christopher Wielden who made the like water for chocolate has done plenty of of abstract work in two weeks jewels by Balanchine is going to be at the Royal Opera House and that's you know a totally Mm. that's a two-hour non-narrative piece where it's three movements and each one is just inspired by a different jewel diamonds emeralds rubies it's great yeah there's plenty of (laughs) non-narrative dance around 
Mm. It's just, it's such an interesting topic because as I say, I was mentioning it with music and I, it's the same with art, isn't it? I guess, mm. you know, there's tons of art that's narrative and also tons that isn't. And again, that you just need to experience it, but I hadn't thought about it in the same way with dance. Which do you think is the, I don't know, I suppose, which do you think is the stronger element at the moment? Is it storification? Is storification winning or, you know, is abstraction hanging on in there? Ooh, wow, okay. It's a very competitive way of putting it, sorry. I just. <laughs> I, mean, I actually feel like a lot of choreographers are doing both. I mean, I'm most familiar with New York City Ballet, which has a very long history of non-narrative work, but they've just made Alexei Ratmansky their choreographer in residence, and he has done a lot of narrative stuff. I don't know. I guess we'll have to we'll have to see. I mean, I will say that like Water for Chocolate and Great Gatsby were both basically sold out. So mm. you know, good for them, and people seem to be enjoying them. So you know, I think there's also going to be whatever sells tickets is going gonna, is gonna to keep being programmed. I must say, from a sort of point of view of somebody who, you know, you spend your life with texts and mm-hmm. trying to figure out what they mean, the idea of going to something and not having to figure out what it means and what's happening yeah. is absolutely enormously attractive to me. Yeah, it's lovely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, absolutely I think it's lovely. lovely. <laughs> Escaping the kind of vice-like grip of making <laughs> narrative sense seems like, absolute bliss to me (laughs) well I think there's also something about the fact that this the contemporary piece was 45 minutes long because when you go to a museum and you see a piece of abstract art it's like okay you can look at it you can move on when you want but just kind of having being forced to sit there for 45 minutes I feel like I kind of got there in a way that I wouldn't have if I had Mm. been able Mm. to move on Wonderful. Well, next time we all go and see a bit of dance, we can think about whether there's a story or whether there isn't a story. (laughs) Try to impose a story. Don't try to impose a story. (laughs) It's more food for thought. And thank you so much for talking us through it, Alice. Thank you so much for having me on. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Kate Hext and Alice Langer-Robb. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast, produced by Charlotte Pardy. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, Alex Clark, goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.